0: Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. All right, we're going to start out a little different today. Um, if you're a longtime listener to this podcast, I used to do like these little things called Bears Biscuits and Bears Books. And I had this, you know, when I first started this podcast, I had all these little bear related things that I could do as, as special pieces of it. And I've just forgotten about it or gotten away from it, however you want to call it. But uh, here's a Bears Biscuit for you. So I subscribe to an app called Canon Plus, and it's Canon with one N in the middle C A N O N, like the Bible Canon. Canon. Canon Plus. Now that is a uh an app with lots of Christian material on it, videos, documentaries. Audiobooks. Um, it's even got like classic books like Treasure Island and and stuff like that. There's some stuff for kids on there. So I really like that app. Now it's run by a Presbyterian church. I'm not a Presbyterian. So there's some things on there about baptism and stuff that I don't agree with, but lots of really good content. And there's a book on there, an audio book I listen to called Heralds of the Reformation. And it's like it's 30 biographies of just different. Uh, people surrounding the the Protestant Reformation, and these biographies are roughly fifteen minutes or so to if you're listening by audiobook. And so, uh, just kind of quick hitting um, biographies that I really enjoyed. I learned a lot about some people I'd never heard of. Now, I mean, you know, you're going to hear you know about Martin Luther and John Calvin, uh, but there's a lot of people that I've never heard of. And so, I'm going to share instead of doing a lot of the intro stuff that I usually do. This is a little mini biography. Most of the content comes from this "Heralds of the Reformation." So, again, that's a it's a great book because you can sit down if you bought this book. You could sit down and read a biography of someone in, you know, 15, 20 minutes or so. And so it's, it's, uh, I just really enjoyed it. So you can also, uh, if you have questions for me before I get going, if you have questions, you can email me bearchristianity at gmail.com or you can message me on Instagram at therealbearmartin. So uh, let's get started. This biography is a, is about Jacques. Lefebvre, Jacques Lefebvre. Now, I'm going to very much countryize that name as we get going. I'll just call him Lefebvre, Lefebvre. That still sounds pretty French. Anyway, he was born in 1455 in France and he received a very poor education, but he he was like a natural genius and he just had this thirst for knowledge, wanted to learn more, and so as he as he got older, he was able to travel extensively. He traveled 3 times to Italy, traveled to Asia, Africa. In 1493, he earned a doctor of divinity from the University of Paris, and he was a distinguished teacher there. Um, Now, he was also highly esteemed by Erasmus. Erasmus is a huge name in church history because Erasmus translated the, uh, the New Testament into Greek. And so Erasmus is a huge name in Bible translation. Anyway, in 1507, so Leferve is 52 years old at this point, he is obsessed with writing this book, and he's been collecting information for years of all the stories of many of the the saints in the Catholic Church. And so he's going to write this big book. That that covers all the the stories of a lot of the saints. There's in the in Catholicism. There's different feast days to certain saints, and so he visited many of their shrines. He's traveling around. Uh, he's going to see relics from different saints and things like that. And so he's and, and he's, he's going, when He goes to visit. He's praying to these saints, asking them to help him in this project. Now one day he's in a library doing research. One day he sees a Bible and decides to just sit down and read the Bible for a little bit. Here's the thing. Now get this. He he has a doctor of doctor of divinity from the University of Paris, but he's not very familiar with the Bible. That should tell you about the the state of the Catholic Church at that time. He's he's not extremely familiar with the Bible. So as he starts reading, he he recognizes that there is a big difference in what he's reading in the bible compared to all these stories these a lot of them are very fanciful stories about the saints throughout christian history as he starts reading the bible he realizes that it it emphasizes christ it's all about christ there's the saints aren't really you know made to be this this uh, a huge deal um you know we see like like for instance in the bible we see peter failing over and over again it, it's not these fanciful tales of the saints and so the, the bible's very different from the these stories that he had been reading. And so he realized that venerating these saints and these relics never brings peace with God. He says it is Christ alone through faith that brings peace with God. And now remember, this is in 1507. This is before Luther nailed the 95 theses, uh, you know, that that kind of kicked off the Protestant Reformation. This is before that. And so don't fall into the trap of Catholics saying, well, you know, Luther just came up with this new, these new ideas and the church had never known this before. No, that is not the case. There was people in every stage of history that that had the true gospel. And so Lefebvre is is one of these people that as he starts reading the Bible for himself, he's seeing the the distinct difference between the Roman Catholic Church in that time and what the Bible says. And so he here's some quotes from him. He says, How indescribably amazing the innocent one is condemned and the criminal acquitted. The blessed one is cursed, and he who is cursed is blessed. Talking about our salvation. Um, he says this, Religion has but one foundation, one object, one head, Jesus Christ, blessed forevermore alone he hath trodden the winepress let us not call ourselves after st paul or apollos or st peter the cross of christ alone openeth the gates of heaven and shutteth the gates of hell so after travelling all over the place wanting to honor these saints and and relics of the catholic church going to write a book about all of this stuff after he after he starts reading the bible for himself Completely does a, a one eighty turn. In fifteen twelve, he wrote a commentary on the letters of Paul in the Bible. In fifteen twenty two, he translated into French the four Gospels, and then a few, and then the next year, eventually the in uh, fifteen twenty three, he had the whole New Testament translated into French, and this was you know spread throughout the country. By fifteen twenty five, he had translated the Old Testament as well. So he's actually responsible for a popular uh, at at that time a very uh, very good tran- french translation of the bible and again this is this is going out to people who had never read the bible for themselves before now it's in their own language now many of his students embraced his teaching uh, some did not but but one student bricone which is a uh, he became a bishop of mo now that's m e a u x mo um Lefèvre gave him a New Testament, and and Briçonnet said this: "Such is the sweetness of this divine food; the more we taste it, the more we long for it." So again, here's a bishop of the church. Lefèvre gives gives him a New Testament, and he's you know he says it is like sweet divine food to have the Word of God and and read it for himself. Now in in Mo the commoners were given copies of the bible to study themselves and so the the whole city of Mo sort of uh, transformed because of the the influence of Lefevre on the bishop there now uh, persecution started to increase um uh, you know as as the reformation's really kicking up and so Lefevre was kind of uh, forced out Lefevre fled to Strasbourg Germany and and lived there under an alias. And then eventually he was called back to France in a little bit more of a a peaceful time. And another... uh, person he had influenced was Marguerite, Queen of Navarre. Now, Marguerite enjoyed his preaching and, and had read his his um, his writings and stuff, his commentaries. And so she wrote to the King of France and got permission for Lefebvre to come stay with her in Navarre. And so he's an old man at this time, but many refugees came to Navarre, most notably the young John Calvin. And so as a young man, Calvin had been already greatly influenced by Lefebvre fervre's writings and then got to meet him in person there in navarre so um so and then the rest is history with John Calvin, of course, but Lefevre died in fifteen thirty six at eighty one years old, so that is just one of the thirty biographies that you get when you get this book, Heralds of the Reformation again, I loved it I, every one of them was awesome, and a lot of these uh, characters, like I just mentioned, John Calvin and Lefevre are sort of tied together. It's really neat to see how these 30 people from different countries and stuff somehow were able to interact, and sometimes in prison, uh, you know, different things like that. Some of them were burned at the stake together um, after, you know, totally separate careers of of um, of sharing the gospel. So great book. Anyway, today I'm going to talk about praying and venerating the saints and Mary uh, relics in the church icons, images, stuff like that. So it's going to be very much a broad overview. And and if you get the basic concept of my argument, then you'll understand why I believe what I believe, and that is that we should not be praying to saints or to Mary. We shouldn't be bowing before um, statues of, of these saints and, and things like that. Now, uh, as far as official Catholic Church teaching, um, you can you can look up the Catechism of the Catholic Church, starting in uh, section twenty one thirty, and continuing down a, a few of those. It talks about you know, basically Catholics are saying veneration is different than worship, and it's okay to venerate these images and uh, icons and stuff like that. So if you have a picture of a saint. Uh, that you're honoring, you can you can venerate them, um, it, it, and then they say, you know, in the Bible, Jesus had the bronze serpent, and there's there's statues of of the cherubim for the ark of the covenant, things like that, and so that that's kind of the the Catholic defense of it's okay to have statues of angels and and different saints because we see that that stuff in the Bible. All right. So that's essentially what the catechism's saying there. And then the second council of Nicaea, that's in A.D. 787. That's the big church council where they said it was okay to venerate saints and images. And, you know, like most of the church councils, they have these different creeds that they um or decrees that they publish. One of them says anathema to those who do not salute the holy and venerable images. So it's almost like you're 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 accursed, you're anathematized, you're excommunicated if you don't do these things, if you don't bow and and, and venerate um, and honor these these images, all right? Now, uh, just a few terms to define. Um, you, you got icons, images, statues, you know, we, I probably don't need to explain those, but in the Catholic church, if you walk into a Catholic church, it's going to look very different than a Protestant Church, and you may see all these pictures on the wall of of different saints, and people may go over there and and light a candle and be praying you know in front of that image um, those types of things so it 's going to look different and then relics relics are like pieces of bone or um hair. Um, you know, wood from Jesus, or or the bone and hairs like from from different saints. So a church may say we have the femur bone of Saint Peter, you know, in our in our church or whatever. And you can come and you can you can pray to Saint Peter and you know near that relic and um different things like that. It, it's It's tough for me to—like, I've listened to debates on this and heard Catholic videos and stuff. I just can't even get there with my mind of why it would be so important to travel such a long distance to pray before a bone, a supposed bone of St. Peter or whatever. But some other relics, uh, very popular would be wood that was supposedly— uh, part of Jesus Cross, and so that that 's all over the place there 's tons of churches that say that they have pieces of wood from Jesus cross, um, a feather from uh, the angel gabriel's wing, and then the the craziest one I have come across is Jesus's foreskin, all right? So Jesus is a Jewish boy, so he was circumcised. And so churches, Roman Catholic churches throughout history have claimed to have the the foreskin of Jesus. And obviously, this is part of the body of Jesus Christ. So this would be an extremely important relic if, if it truly was the foreskin of Jesus. Um, now, obviously, I, I doubt that it is. Anyway, at one time, 18 different churches claim to have Jesus foreskin. Okay, that's how ridiculous this relic stuff gets. Um eventually, they all disappeared except one. One remained, and that is in Calcutta, Italy. And so in that town every year on January 1st, which is the feast of the circumcision of our Lord, okay, that used to be an official Roman Catholic feast. Um, that there's a parade and they would have a parade in this, in Calcutta and, and they would parade the foreskin of Jesus around the town. And it was a big celebration. All right. Now, this has been a point of mockery by protestants since the, the time of the reformation because it's just ridiculous you it's it's we are 2000 years out and you're saying that you have the foreskin of jesus and you're parading it around town now i'm not saying that all catholics are like all about this and think that it's real okay in 1950, the Pope actually threatened excommunication just for talking about this foreskin of Jesus. That's how embarrassing it was getting for the Catholic Church. So the Pope is like, "Just stop it, okay?" Now that did not stop the people in Calcutta. They kept the parades going. Um, now in Vatican II, Vatican II Church Council, they eliminated the feast of the circumcision of our Lord Try, again, trying to stop this parade and and just the the charade of of all this mess. Uh Calcutta didn't care the parade continued in 1983 the relic the foreskin of Jesus was stolen dun, dun, dun. this is, this sounds like a a movie all right the main suspect here's the main suspect the Vatican the okay so we have conspiracy here and the reason they're the main suspect is the Vatican uh, was thought to have coordinated with local priests to steal this relic so that the parade and, and all this all this mess would stop. And so it's not like the Vatican was stealing it for themselves because they thought it was actually Jesus foreskin, but they just wanted all of this this to stop. And so uh, to try to save further embarrassment from the Roman Catholic Church. So there you go. There's a there's a little nugget for you today. All right, so relics could be I mean anything and and in different times in in church history, especially the medieval times, I mean churches were claiming to have all kinds of stuff. Um it, you know, it's almost as if the more relics you had in a church, the 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 more blessed you are. And so there's all kinds of false relics and and um and most of them could not be verified at all. All right, so that's that's the term relics. Uh now Prayer. When when Catholics and Protestants use the word prayer, sometimes we're talking about the same thing. But in the Protestant mind, prayer is also is always equivalent to worship. Uh, praying to God is an is a part of worshiping God. To a Catholic, though, prayer can you know prayer to God obviously can be seen as worship, but prayer is more of a, a request um to it's it's asking for something. And so you can pray to a saint or pray to Mary as well, and they'll say, you know, we're not worshipping Mary or the saints. We are we are praying to them but in a different way than than how we pray to God. And then so that leads me to worship. Um sometimes Protestants will say, why do Catholics worship saints or why do Catholics worship Mary? or worship these statues of Mary things like that. And Catholics would say, well, we're not worshiping it the same way that we're, well, they, the Catholics would say we're not worshiping it at all, okay? They're saying we are venerating those things. It is veneration. And so veneration is different from the worship that's only due to God and and there and therefore Jesus. So so veneration is something you can do to Mary and the saints and and the statues and stuff like that and veneration is more of just honor and respect and when you when you venerate before a picture of Saint Peter you are remembering the life Saint Peter lived and and trying to be inspired by Saint Peter or Saint whoever so veneration is different from worship and so that's how a, a Catholic would explain it and to to further try to explain that, they use two words, latria and dulia. Now, latria and dulia, those are Latin words, but they come from the Greek word latruo, which is to to serve, to worship. And this this could mean adoration. And, And latria is always used in reference to serving God. So latria is what they give God alone. Whereas dulia can sometimes be talked about as far as serving God, but also it can be serving other things or giving honor and respect. And and that comes from the Greek word douluo. Now that I gave the verb forms. Anyway, latria and doulia is what we'll stick with for our conversation today. So doulia would be like honor or service, again, sometimes to God, sometimes to man. Um, So very simplified worship or latria is only to God the Father Jesus Christ uh, that you can you can use latria in regards to how you adore the eucharist in the catholic mind so because that's the body and blood of Jesus Christ um, but dulia is or veneration and dulia is Ju- is the only that that's what they do for the saints and relics and stuff like that. And then Mary has a little bit extra dulia. And so Catholics say they give hyper dulia to Mary. So just they, they give Mary just a little bit more um than or, or you could say a lot more. They they give Mary a lot more than what they give saints, but not as much or not in the same category as they give God. So Latria, dulia, and hyper dulia. All right. Now, here's my response to all this. There is no biblical distinction between Latria and dulia, especially when it comes to a religious context. So let me give you a verse here. Exodus 20, Verses four and five, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. That word serve there is, in, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, is the word for latria, okay? And now, here's the main point, though. The, this, the Hebrew word, abad, is translated latria, sometimes in the, in the Greek translation, and sometimes dulia. So both words are used to translate the same word here for you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So the same Hebrew word is, used, is translated in different areas with Latria and Dulia. So there's, there's no distinction biblically between the two. Now, it is true in the Bible, Latria is not used as much. And when it is used, it is specifically talking about in reference to God. So, uh, to some extent, I can get what Catholics are saying there. But when dulia is used, it is talking about you shall not serve you know, um, anything else, you shall not serve it. You serve God only. Let me give you some verses there. Exodus 23, 33, they shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Judges 10, 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the bells. That's Dulia, have served the baals. So here, the people say, we have sinned against God because we have given dulia to something else. And, and in this context, it is the Baals. And so you can not they can't say, oh, well, you know, we didn't give Latria to the Baals. We only gave dulia, so it's not a sin. No, the, God says, or the people understand that if you give dulia to anything else in a religious context other than God, that is a sin. Uh, one more, First Samuel 7, 3, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. That's Dulia, and Dulia, him, only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So, yes, Dulia in other parts of the Bible is talking about service to men, like, like a, a man who is a slave to another man. It's talking about the, the it's using the word dulia there but in a religious context you do not give dulia to anyone but God there is not this distinction that Catholics try to make where you can you can serve um, these you know saints and and Mary and all of this stuff Anytime dulia is used in a religious context, you better be giving that to God. So just think about that. You know, Catholics will try to separate it out, latria and dulia, and that's how they try to justify what they're doing before statues and stuff like that. Just think about a Catholic in your mind. There's all these relics all over the place, candles lit. It's dark, you know, and and, and they're in this church and they're and they're praying. They're bowing before a saint's statue. They're clutching rosary beads or or maybe the crucifix. They've got that in their hands. The, again, candles lit. And they're praying for that saint to intervene um, in their life in some way. Here, I looked up a popular prayer. This is to St. Anthony. Um, Dear St. Anthony, you loved God so much when you lived upon the earth. You were known even then as a great wonder worker. So great did his power live in you. Now that you are in heaven, you share in God's glory and in his power in a more perfect way. Look on me with kindness as I come to you in my need. So the Catholic is coming to St. Anthony in their need. I pray for healing myself and for whom those I love. Amen. So So, you know, this is a religious context. They are praying. They are wanting healing. They're praying to St. Anthony and saying, oh, it's not a big deal because this is just Dulia. This is not Latria. That is not, that's not a biblical distinction. Now, you know, if Catholics want to say Dulia and Latria, we're not using them biblically. We're just kind of using them how we want to. And we're redefining what Latria and Dulia mean to... To fit our Catholic mindset, then that, I guess that's what they have to do. So I can I can appreciate that Catholics are saying, "Listen, we're not giving you know we in our minds we're not giving worship the same way to these saints and images and Mary that we're giving to God. It is different, and, but but it's it's not just about intention." And that, and that's what our, in in a debate between James White and Patrick Madrid on venerating saints and images and stuff, the Catholic Patrick Madrid he says, you know, what you got to keep in mind is that intention is very important. Catholics are our intent, no matter what Protestants say. Our intention is that we are not giving the same type of worship, uh, or or worship at all. Really, we're venerating these saints and images. In one of the parts of Vatican II, it's called Lumen Gentium, and in section 62, the Catholic Church tries to clarify herself by saying this, Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the Church under the titles of Advocate, Helper, Benefactress, and Mediatrix. This, however, is so understood that it neither takes away anything from nor adds anything to the dignity and efficacy of Christ the One Mediator. So they try to you know lay that out they're saying we're we're not you know taking away anything from Christ by also venerating you know and and praying to Mary Now intention. It, it there's, there's people that have good intentions in the Bible, but they're still not being obedient to what God said, and, and they are punished for it. Two quick examples. I've already mentioned this one in a previous episode, but the golden calf, okay? Exodus 32, verses 4 through 7. So Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and Moses is gone for a while and the people are like, where did Moses go? And so they say, Aaron, make for us um, some some statues to worship. And so Aaron gets the gold from the people, and he fashions these golden calves. Okay, so Exodus thirty two four through seven, he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving uh, a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, this is what the people said. Okay. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So they, they make these golden calves and they're not saying, okay, this is a totally separate God from the God who brought us out of Egypt. No, they are, they are, they have this image in front of them that they can see and touch. And they're saying, this is the God. These are the gods, these golden calves. These is, this is the gods who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. All right. So their intention here is to worship the God who brought them out of Egypt. And they're making these golden calves and a and they're just saying, this is the object. So we, we need something to see. Moses is gone. We, we need something to see, to direct our attention to. And these, this is what brought us out of the, the land of Egypt. And then Aaron clarifies their, their intention. He says, tomorrow we'll, we'll, make, we'll have a big feast for the Lord who brought us out of Egypt. So they, in a way, they, they think that they're doing the right thing. And and so they rose up. the The Bible verse continues, and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So they are they think that they're doing the right thing. And the and then the verse continues, and the Lord said to Moses, "Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves." So again, intention. If you're not obedient to what God had said, then intention does not matter. Another great example of this is Uzzah. Now, in First Chronicles 13, verses 7-10, that's what I'm going to read. But essentially, the, the Ark of the Covenant, what God told them, you always carry the Ark on certain poles. And instead, the nation of Israel had built a cart to to carry the Ark of the Covenant, and that's not what God had said. And so, there the the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen, and the people are actually celebrating that the Ark of the Covenant is going to be returned. And so they're on their way uh, back. And it says this: First Chronicles thirteen seven through ten. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. This is a big party. They are celebrating because God has, has is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to the nation of Israel. So their intention is good. And when they came to the threshing floor of Kaidan, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the Ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. So they make a, a cart, there, and, and their the oxen stumble, and the cart the Ark of the Covenant is about to fall off of the cart onto the ground. And that, that shouldn't happen to the Ark of the Covenant. So Uzzah puts out his hand to stabilize it from falling. His intention is good here, but he, they were being disobedient. They shouldn't. They should have never had the ark of the covenant on a cart in the first place. And you do. And God told them, "Do not touch the ark with your hands." And so, so Uzzah disobeyed. His intention was good, but he disobeyed, and he was struck dead. So we have got to be obedient to the Bible first. Our intention doesn't matter if we're not being obedient to to God's word. So those are kind of my general thoughts on the, on praying to like images and venerating work, you know, uh, venerating certain images and statues and things like that. Now I want to shift and talk about prayer. Now, uh, Catholics can they'll pray to all the saints and you know the, 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 every every Catholic has their own favorite saints to pray to um if you're if you if you pray to Saint Anthony or if you if you're trying to find something that's lost you might pray to Saint Anthony if you're trying to sell your house you may pray to Saint Joseph there's there's all kinds of uh saints that kind of help you in certain ways to me it kind of reminds me of the pagan nations who had gods for all different things, you have a fertility god and you have a a, a wealth god and, you know, gods for all different things. It's kind of like you have saints for all these different parts of life that you can go to and get special prayer for them. Now, I know that's not what Catholics are intending once again, but, but you can, uh, you know, I see the parallels there. So again, the the Catholic point of view when it comes to praying to Mary and the saints is this. They say, of course, you can pray to Jesus personally, but why wouldn't you also pray to those that are closest to him? The people closest to Jesus have the greatest influence on him, like Jesus mother, of course, why wouldn't you pray to mary and and the saints they're the the most righteous and they're in heaven and and they have the greatest influence to to speak to Jesus on your behalf and so in in Catholicism, the communion of saints is not only just for for believers here on earth like you like in, in in protestantism you know i ask people to pray for me all the time well catholics in in the catholic mind asking a, a saint in heaven to pray for them is equivalent to uh, you know asking a friend to pray for you and so but the but but the saint because they're in heaven and they are more righteous their prayers are more efficacious they they get more done the the, the prayers work better so to speak if you if you Try, can try to think of it in that way. Um, and so, you know, in, in James chapter five, it says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so Catholics will say, well, of course, then the prayers of Mary and the saints are gonna have extreme power as they are, as they are working. In a Catholic Answers tract entitled Praying to the Saints, they're referencing James 5, the verse I just mentioned, and it says this, quote, those Christians in heaven are more righteous since they have been made perfect to stand in God's presence than anyone on earth, meaning their prayers would be even more efficacious, okay? Now, I've already mentioned the prayer to St. Anthony, if you lose stuff and if you want to sell your house, you pray to St. Joseph. Uh, I'm just going to focus in now on prayers to Mary because... That is the the, I think that helps show the biggest difference in the the Protestant mindset when it comes to prayer, and how only our prayers should be directed to God, and the Catholic mindset where they're praying to God and then also Mary and the saints. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna read two popular prayers to Mary. And so uh, the first one comes from a Catholic Answers website that just kind of lists out some of the more common prayers. It says this, uh, here's the, the quote, "'Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired with this confidence, we turn to thee, O Virgin of virgins, our mother. To thee we come, before thee we stand, sinful and sorrowful.'" O oh, mother of the word incarnate, do not despise our petitions, but in thy mercy, hear and answer us. Amen. The, the part that really sticks out to me is answer us. So when I, you know, if Catholics say, you know, praying to Mary and the saints, it's like, it's like asking your friend to pray for you, except, you know, their prayers are more efficacious, right? Because Mary and the saints are in heaven. But I don't, I don't tell my friend, hey, uh i'm i'm praying to or i'm asking you to pray for me and i need an answer from you i need you to answer my prayer but here they're asking mary to answer their prayer it's it's one thing to say pray for me, in, in intervene on my behalf. Pray to God for me for healing for you know whatever it is in life. But they are that that's very different than saying hear me and answer my prayer. Like you can you I'm waiting on your answer Mary to my prayer. That's that's very different. Uh, here's a an, here's another one. This this one is going to this is going to blow your mind. I, I could not believe it the first time I read. Uh, I read this prayer. Now, this prayer is from a novena. A novena is a traditional Catholic prayer that continues for nine days and is intended to ask for a particular favor or blessing, or to give thanks for blessings received. Now, this particular novena I'm going to read is extremely common. It is prayed weekly around the world, and it consists of three prayers followed uh, like three different novenas first second and third and then every time you play pray each of those novenas you you follow it up with three Hail Marys you know after each section and so you pray all three novenas for nine consecutive days and so here is the third novena of this prayer quote O Mother of Perpetual Help, you are the dispenser of all the gifts which God grants to us miserable sinners, and for this end He has made you so powerful, so rich, and so bountiful, in order that you may help us in our misery. You are the advocate. By the way, we are told in John 14 that the Holy Spirit is our advocate. But instead, in this prayer, Mary is our advocate. You are the advocate of the most wretched and abandoned sinners who have recourse to you. Come to my aid, dearest mother, for I recommend myself to you. In your hands, I place my eternal salvation. And to you, I entrust my soul. Count me among your most devoted servants. Take me under your protection, and it is enough for me. For if you protect me, dear mother, I fear nothing, not from my sins, because you will obtain for me the pardon of them, nor from the devils, because you are more powerful than all hell together, nor even from Jesus, my judge, because one prayer from you, he will be appeased. But one thing I fear, that in the hour of temptation, I may through negligence fail to have recourse to you and thus perish miserably. Obtain for me, therefore, the pardon of my sins, love for Jesus, final perseverance, and the grace to have recourse to you, O mother of perpetual help." Here, we have just heard that the petition is that they place their eternal salvation on Mary and entrust their soul to Mary. You know, we're, we're said, "Oh, I don't fear anything because of you, Mary. I don't fear the the demons, and I don't fear the judgment of Jesus because you are are, are interceding. One one prayer from you, and Jesus will be appeased." So Jesus is portrayed as some. Unapproachable judge, just ready to have wrath on everybody. And the only way that he can be satisfied is if Mary, his mom, goes and asks him to have mercy on us on our behalf. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. So, you know, that's why we got to go to his mother. Even Jesus can't say no to his mother. So you got to pray to her. It's, it's just ridiculous in my mind. And it takes away from the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. In an extremely popular pro-Catholic book, it was written by Saint Alphonsus Liguori. Um, it's called "The Glories of Mary," and you can find a you know free PDF version of this if you want. There's there's several prayers to Mary in this book. Um, I, I in in looking at this book, I came across an article that an ex nun had written. She's now a a Protestant Christian, and an ex nun had written about this book, "The Glories of Mary." She says this quote, in this book. Lagori says that Mary was given rulership over one half of the kingdom of God. Mary rules over the kingdom of mercy, and Jesus rules over the kingdom of justice. Ligori said that people should pray to Mary as a mediator and look to her as an object of trust for answered prayer. The book even says that there is no salvation outside of Mary. Some people suggest that these views are extreme and not representative of Catholic Church teaching. However, instead of silencing Ligori as a heretic, the Catholic Church canonized him as a saint and declared him to be a doctor of the church. Which And then she explains what a doctor of the church is, uh, in parentheses, a person whose teachings carry weight and authority. Furthermore, his book is openly and officially promoted by the Catholic Church, and his teachings have influenced popes. So that's on the glories of Mary. By the way, this uh, O Mother of Perpetual Help prayer that I read earlier is, is also included in that Glories of Mary book so i've I've mentioned this verse a bunch lately, first Timothy two five for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now think about the Catholic claim and and Catholics will will try to address this verse, and they'll say, well, of course Jesus is the the primary main mediator uh, you know of course we honor jesus, he is the he is the mediator, but Jesus, uh, uh, Mary, in a in a different way, is is kind of a secondary mediator, and the saints are also mediators. Okay, that's the Catholic claim. But think about what this verse is saying: for there is one God, and there is one mediator. So. If we're going to take mediator to mean, well, of course there's a primary mediator, but then there's there can be other mediators as well. Then we've got to apply that to, you know, five words earlier, there is one god. Well, there's there's of course the primary god, but then there's all these other, you know, lesser gods, secondary gods, but they all serve the one primary god, of course. You know, no, that is not What Paul is talking about here in this verse. There is one God. There is only one God. And in the same way, there is only one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now in closing, let me just ask this question. Why do we pray? Obviously, it's important. Uh, Just looking at the example Jesus gave, he was constantly going off and praying. And so we know prayer is important. The disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. And that's in in Matthew 6, uh, verses 5 through 15. We have Jesus teaching on the Lord's prayer. Let me just read one verse there. It's Matthew 6 7. So before he gets into the Lord's prayer, Jesus says, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. When I hear when I when I read that phrase, meaningless repetition, think about how many Hail Marys and our fathers have been thrown up because you you go to the priest, you ask for confession. Okay, say ten Hail Marys and ten our fathers, and your sins are forgiven. Uh, Hail Mary, full of grace, da, 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 our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, I, I'm not saying that every Catholic does that, but it, it, in in Catholicism, there are several prayers that are just said just just for repetition's sake, that you just do this because that's what Catholics do. and And so we've got to think about the words that we're praying. It's not about meaningless repetition and saying this prayer a certain amount of times in order to get some kind of benefit. That is not why we pray. So when when the disciples say, teach us to pray, and and then Jesus kind of lays out an example to them. First, we must acknowledge the Lord is holy. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as, as it is in heaven. So next, after acknowledging, Lord, you are holy. It is all about you. You are set apart. You are distinct. Then we've got to align ourselves with his will. Your your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So very first, when we start praying, it is all about you, Lord. And then align, help me to align my heart, my will with your will. And, and, you know, we get this. uh, The greatest example is Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. Now, the next thing we do is ask for what we need. Give us this day our daily bread. And so we acknowledge that it is, again, it is all about the Lord. He is our source. He gives us what we need. And so we, in, in asking for our daily bread, we are acknowledging it is God who provides that for us. We, we then ask for forgiveness and forgive us our debts or our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us, again, aligning our heart with God's heart, aligning our heart with God's will. God is forgiving. So we should be forgiving of others as God has also forgiven us. And then we ask God to deliver us from temptation and evil and deliver us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for, and then for yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so prayer is about acknowledging who God is, acknowledging that he is holy. And then it is all, it is about aligning our hearts with his, our will with his. So, so prayer is not a, a bargain um, between you and the Lord. Your prayer is always, yes, there is petitioning there. There is asking for things in prayer, but it is always, it is always followed up with not my will, but your will be done. So prayer is communication with God. It unites my heart with God's eternal good purposes. And the more I am in fellowship with God through prayer, the more my thoughts and my actions will be directed toward him and towards his purpose. Every petition, again, should be not my will, but your will be done. So it's not going to, you know, I'm going to ask something for Jesus, but, you know, he can't, his mom's got a lot of power with him. If I go to his mom, he can't really say no to his mom. So I'm going to also ask Mary to be going to Jesus for me. And, and, you know, he also has his friends, the saints, those are the ones closest to Jesus, the most righteous. And so let me ask them to help as well. That is not the purpose of prayer. Let me give you this this closing verse from Jesus, and this is the heart of Jesus. Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus gives rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light.